Section 1 of President Lincoln's Attitude Toward Slavery and Emancipation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. President Lincoln's Attitude Toward Slavery and Emancipation by Henry Watson Wilbur. Section 1. Forward. It is nearly half a century since the untimely death of President Lincoln, and during all these years he has steadily grown in popular favor. Because of his having come from the ranks of the common people, plus the crown of martyrdom forced upon him, he probably appeals to the general imagination more than any other man in our history. In a nationwide referendum for the selection of the typical American, it is likely Lincoln would receive a large majority. But any attempt to make him out a sort of superman would be unjust to his character. It is easy to imagine with what fine scorn and apt stories he would repel any attempt to place him on a pedestal and Hellenize him as a demigod. It is therefore with an intensely human Lincoln that we wish to deal. The original purpose in making this book was simply to consider the evolution of Lincoln's mind in approaching the Emancipation Proclamation, with such personal estimates of his contemporaries as would show the manner and method of the man as he dealt with the great problem, the solution of which was committed to him. The study of the case, however, grew in interest as we proceeded. Since the work was begun, conditions have developed in our country, which seem to demand that the case be brought down to date, rather than stop with the close of the Civil War and the death of Lincoln. If the period before emancipation, and the events which belonged to it, were important in an effort to understand the issue which culminated with the rebellion, then what has been going on since that time must be considered to make the story complete. All that the act of emancipation could possibly do, no matter how accomplished, was to simplify the problem, for it surely did not solve it. If it shall appear, as we proceed, that the writer has a firm conviction that the fruits of our unfortunate civil war should be preserved in fortifying, extending, and perpetuating the benefits and blessings of free government, he hopes that the case may be presented without bitterness. While the personal estimates of Lincoln made by his contemporaries were slightly conflicting at certain points, it should be said that the general character of this first-hand evidence is singularly united touching the temper and motive of his conduct. Moral sincerity, and a fixed purpose to so save and fortify free government that it should not perish from the earth, was undoubtedly the center of his purpose. For the sake of this great undertaking, he was willing to hold sentiment in abeyance, and heavily tax the sympathy and endurance of a most tender spirit. Hence we shall endeavor to so present the varied estimates of the men of his time, that a correct conclusion regarding the real Lincoln may be reached. If, when the evidence is all in, it shall appear that touching all the questions involved, from the freedom of the slaves to the reconstruction of the states in rebellion, Lincoln was really ahead rather than behind the major public sentiment of his time, 
his real greatness will be more plainly apparent. Idealist, and almost prophet and poet, he knew how to meet the real world on its own ground, and how much of his idealism could be worked in the life of men, and in a scheme of national progress which should be human enough to belong to this world, and virile enough to stand on its feet. In the midst of all his experiences, his deeply religious nature will be constantly seen in command of even his wit and his wisdom, as he went about the severe task which confronted him. Lincoln understood the spiritual values, and because of that understanding, he developed into a constructive statesman of the first rank. With the hope that the facts and opinions herein set forth may result in making President Lincoln better understood, the valuable work he did for his country in the hour of its greatest peril more keenly appreciated, and the lesson of his life an increasing inspiration to his countrymen, we send this volume on its way. Slavery in the Colonies no adequate understanding of the institution of slavery in its relation to the general government, and especially as it involved the country in a civil war, in whose fiery furnace the institution died, is possible without some knowledge of its growth and the ways and means by which it secured constitutional recognition. There seems to be little doubt that if the majority of the fathers and founders of the Republic could have formed a more perfect union, and framed a constitution entirely after their own hearts, provision would have been made for the gradual removal of slavery from our country. In fact, the opinion was rather general in the period immediately following the Revolution, that in the main, slavery was not economically profitable, while it was held to be morally inconsistent with the genius of Republican institutions. It was a minority of the fathers who forced the fatal compromise which perpetuated the institution, which was to prove a millstone about the nation's neck. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution, slavery existed and was a legalized institution in every state in the Union, Massachusetts excepted. In the census of 1790, there were less than 4,000 slaves in New England, two-thirds of the number being in Connecticut. The states of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania contained 36,484 human chattels, Pennsylvania having only 3,737. Slavery ceased in all these states long before the Civil War. At the time indicated, the slaves in Delaware and Maryland numbered 111,923, 103,036 of this number being held in servitude in the latter state. The following represents the number of slaves in the four states of the original thirteen, which sided with the Confederacy in the Civil War. Virginia, 293,427. North Carolina, 100,372. South Carolina, 107,094. Georgia, 29,264. Total, 520,357. As the number of slaves in the entire country in 1790 was reported as 657,527, it will be seen that about 80% of the slaves were in the four states which in 1861 joined hands with the Southern Confederacy. 
the ninth continental congress in session in annapolis considered a plan for the government of quote, the territory ceded already or to be ceded by the individual states to the united states end quote. thomas jefferson introduced what has passed into history as the ordinance of seventeen eighty four the ordinance among other things provided quote, that after the year eighteen hundred of the christian era there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in any of the said states end quote. this ordinance failed of adoption because an affirmative vote of a majority of the states was not recorded had new jersey been fully represented and voted as new york and pennsylvania did the ordinance would have been carried south carolina virginia and maryland voted against the ordinance and the vote of north carolina was divided thus early did the fathers attempt to provide for the non-extension of slave territory in seventeen eighty seven the last continental congress assembled in new york and at the same time the convention which had been called to frame a constitution for all of the states was deliberating in philadelphia this congress adopted by practically unanimous vote the ordinance of seventeen eighty seven its sixth article contained the non-extension of slavery clause of the defeated ordinance considered three years before the constitutional convention met behind closed doors and no official record of its detailed deliberations exists still reliable evidence indicates that early in its sessions south carolina and georgia appeared to make demands in behalf of some recognition of slavery such recognition appeared in three places and in as many ways in our fundamental law it is suggestive however that neither the words slave or slavery appear in the immortal document nothing more surely illustrates the fact that even in seventeen eighty seven the question was not a pleasant one to consider the minds of the fathers seem to have been set at ease by the compromises which made the ratification of the constitution by the requisite number of states possible from the political standpoint the most valuable concession to slavery in the constitution was the provision which made the slave population a basis of representation in congress in the following terms quote, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons three-fifths of all other persons covered the slaves and gave an added numerical strength to the slave states in the popular branch of congress what was section nine of article one in the original draft of the constitution contained a veiled endorsement of the slave trade in the following language quote, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the congress prior to the year one thousand eight hundred and eight but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding ten dollars for each person End quote. the third concession to south carolina and georgia appeared in section three of article four 
quote, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due End quote. this is the part of the constitution called the slave catching provision which met the severe condemnation of the abolitionists under the constitution in seventeen eighty nine immediately following the adoption of the constitution north carolina proposed to cede her outlying territory which later became the state of tennessee to the federal union before the transfer of this territory congress was required to accept the following condition quote, provided always that no regulation made or to be made by congress shall tend to emancipate slaves End quote. three years later georgia proceeded to make over to the general government territory belonging to her out of which the states of alabama and mississippi were eventually formed it was stipulated that the specified territory should be organized into states according to the provisions of the ordinance of seventeen eighty seven with the proviso quote, the article only accepted which forbids slavery end quote. congress acceded to this demand and two new slave states were thus carved out of territory which the ordinance of seventeen eighty seven dedicated to freedom following these comparatively easy victories a campaign was begun to divide and organize indiana territory now comprising the states of indiana illinois and michigan on the basis of tolerated slavery but the attempt failed and slavery aggression was suspended until the purchase of louisiana from france when an added impulse was furnished to the slave interest but something happened more important than the purchase of territory or the suspension of ordinances guaranteeing freedom namely the invention of the cotton gin by eli whitney that made cotton growing a most profitable type of agriculture and gave to slavery its immense mercenary footing from this time on the struggle between the forces of freedom and slavery became more and more intense the moral conscience touching the peculiar institution rapidly deteriorated as the seeming profit in slave labor increased churches which hoped and resolved against slavery lapsed into silence as the jingling of the dollar healed the hurt which conscience felt horace greeley referring to resolutions against the institution adopted by a southern church convention sagely remarked that quote, no similar declaration has been made by any church south of the mason and dixon line since field hands rose to one thousand dollars each and black infants at birth were accounted worth one hundred dollars the territory of missouri comprising all the purchase from france except the state of louisiana came up for consideration when part of the territory knocked for admission into the union as a state in eighteen eighteen over the petition the storm raged furiously as it progressed many surprises developed thomas jefferson in spite of the fact that he was the author of the non-extension ordinance of seventeen eighty four gave the full weight of his influence to slavery extension 
as did ex-president madison the outcome of the controversy was the missouri compromise which is here given Quote, and be it further enacted that in all that territory ceded by france to the united states under the name of louisiana which lies north of thirty-six degrees thirty minutes north latitude excepting only such part thereof as is included within the limits of the state contemplated by this act slavery and involuntary servitude otherwise than in the punishment of crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall be and is hereby forever prohibited End quote. missouri was thus admitted as a slave state in eighteen twenty with the territory to the south of thirty-six degrees north latitude open to the peculiar institution and all north of that line ordained to freedom in eighteen forty five president polk suggested that a treaty of peace might be negotiated with mexico provided it carried with it an appropriation for securing land beyond the existing national boundary the real object was of course more territory and larger opportunity for the expansion of slavery while this effort was pending david wilmot a member of the house of representatives of pennsylvania and at that time a democrat in politics introduced the proviso which made his name historic this paragraph inserted in the bill was as follows quote, provided that as an express and fundamental condition to the acquisition of any territory from the republic of mexico by the united states by virtue of any treaty that may be negotiated between them and to the use by the executive of the monies herein appropriated neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall ever exist in any part of said territory except for crime whereof the party shall first be duly convicted the wilmot proviso contained the gist of the whole attempt to prevent the extension of slave territory while it passed the house it failed in the senate and the bill which carried it never became a law probably no like number of words shorn of all legal or applied value ever occupied a place of such importance as this proviso did in the history of american legislation the compromises of eighteen fifty introduced in the senate by henry clay revived the whole question of slavery and strengthened that institution especially by repealing all provision for restricting slave territory by enacting the fugitive slave law and pledging abstinence of the abolition of slavery in certain sections of the country these compromises ugly as they were in many respects from the anti-slavery standpoint were pretty generally accepted by public opinion north and south a false sense of security settled over the country in the opinion that these compromises settled the slavery question while as a matter of fact they only intensified the irrepressible conflict nothing served more to intensify the disturbing issue of slavery than the kansas nebraska bill this was a measure for organizing the region westward of missouri and iowa into two territories to be known as kansas and nebraska stephen a douglas then senator from illinois at this point devised a plan for dealing with slavery in new territories which became popularly known as squatter sovereignty in other words the plan provided 
that all matters pertaining to slavery in the territories and in the new states to be formed therefrom are to be left to the decision of the people residing therein through their appropriate representatives it was generally admitted that the kansas nebraska bill repealed the missouri compromise and all the free territory in the country was handed over to the tender mercies of such settlers as might be induced to enter a state and stay long enough to vote out of this plan grew the bloody struggles in kansas the details of which do not belong in this story the kansas nebraska bill undoubtedly furnished the final logical reason for the organization of the national republican party with the non-extension of slave territory as its dominant issue as the party's first successful candidate for president from eighteen sixty until the end abraham lincoln became the moral and political storm center of the slavery controversy end of section one